Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Oh, yes. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. What better way to spend your time than to sit back, relax, and join us for Radiotherapy here on 3RRR 102.7. And keeping me company here in the studio is my new best friend, Glenn. As in Glen 20. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've ever been somewhere so clean, fresh and sanitised. The doors are open, so any COVID-infected miasma just gets to waft away. And down the corridor, chuckling in his own disinfected studio bubble, we have the indefatigable panel beater. Hi, panel beater. G'day, Dr. Nick. Yeah, it's um, surgery uh, ready, is the studio right now. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is so clean, you could eat your bacon and eggs off this surface. <laughs> um, so in the show today... Today, our mental health is never far away from the radiotherapy radar. So this week has been Mental Health Week. So it's a perfect time for our resident psychotherapists to have their say. Prudence Deer will be coming on in a minute. She'll be looking at single-session therapy. Is this an efficient use of a scarce resort? Or perhaps a scarce, res- a scarce resource, pardon my fumbling. Or a cop-out for those who are too scared to properly delve into the psyche. We'll be finding out shortly. And then... Rainbow Doc will change tag to talk with us about practice-based evidence. Now, for a scientist like myself, this could be a challenge, so I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say. And finally this morning, what do you put in your coffee? What do you put in your coffee, panel beater? I'm, I'm black all the way. Ah, so you don't have the Brunswick dilemma because no. <laughs> this, this part of the world north of the river it probably comes from a soybean or an almond or even perhaps a goat. Uh, <laughs> but if it does come, come from a cow, it's probably A2 anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a time when milk was just, well, well milk. <laughs> <laughs> so misdiagnosis will be here to dissect the options and answer the question, fancy milks, just a fad or a good health choice? That'll be coming up towards the end of the show. But before we get to them, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, so in the news, well, my goodness, what do we choose from panel beat? The news is so oh, full. If only there was a plague to talk about. <laughs> well, almost the plague news has been swept aside by the USA news, hasn't oh, it? Yeah, it really extraordinary person in charge. I just want to touch on one particular aspect, which many listeners will have been familiar with through the week, this extraordinary story of his treatment mm. for his COVID infection, and particularly the, the drug which he is... Um, he tells us he took, and I'm sure it's true, with this dexamethasone, um, a potent steroid. I'm not sure you've, you've ever been given anything like that, have you, Panel Beater? Oh, I've got somebody, some in my uh, medicine drawer, I'm sure. I'll, I'll fish it out after the show. <laughs> so, so just to clarify for people, dexamethasone is a very potent, what we call corticosteroid. Uh, people might be familiar with these from things like asthma puffers, where they, we use a very tiny dose in an inhaled form in some of the preventative asthma puffers. And corticosteroids also used in the nasal sprays that are used for hay fever. Tiny doses, local treatment, incredibly safe. But then we get a little more potent and we use one called 
Dimethicillone, which is kind of the baby brother of dexamethasone. We use that sometimes by mouth when we're treating sort of severe flare-ups of asthma, that kind of thing. Dr. Nick, yeah, maybe I, I was joking a moment ago, but maybe I do. So is this Inventolin? Uh, no, not in Ventolin. So there are two types of asthma puffers. There's the reliever puffer, which is something like Ventolin, which just relaxes the airways. Right. Um, but then there are the preventer puffers. Uh, many of those contain a Ventolin-like substance as well, the combined puffers. But uh-huh. most of the preventers will have in them a low-dose, low-strength local corticosteroid. Gotcha. So I don't want to scare people because the asthma puffers, the hay fever puffers that we use for prevention are incredibly safe because they're low-dose and they're local. When we use prednisolone for something like asthma, we use higher doses in tablet form. Very, very powerful and effective thing. But we don't use dexamethasone very often. We certainly don't use it in primary care and general practice almost ever. It's used for things like brain swelling after severe brain insult uh, to stop the head, uh, the brain expanding inside the skull. It's a very potent anti-inflammatory. Uh, and we think that's probably why it works for COVID, because it damps down the immune system's inflammatory response. And we now know that it's that inflammatory response which causes a lot of the damage. Now, uh, that's normally done when people are severely ill in hospital. Well, we, of course, don't quite know what happened to Trump, how severely ill he was. But we understand that he was given this very potent corticosteroid. The reason I asked Panel Beta if you've ever taken it by mouth, because and most people haven't, um, I, I was once given for a severe sinus problem an mm. oral uh, course of prednisolone, the baby brother to dexamethasone, mm. and wow, the side effect it had psychologically really, huh? was really potent. Um, I've, I had that really strong sense of uh, unease and anxiety. Disorientation? Uh, Would that be the way to... All sorts of words like that. Disorientation certainly one of them. But I was astonished by how potent that side yeah. effect was. And we know that it can do this and it can cause euphoria. Um, but for more than one reason, A, it gets rid of all your aches and pains because all the older man sore joints and creaky bits feel much, much better if yeah, you take right. a solid <laughs> wax of dexamethasone. It's not surprising to me that Trump comes out and says he feels better than he has for 20 years um, because all the achy bits probably don't ache anymore. Goodness but, me. Yeah. yeah, but much more importantly, it's this concern we have that it can really change your thinking. Now, with a man like Trump who's thinking we get concerned about anyway, what do you think of that, panel Oh, uh, look, it, it, yeah, the mind boggles. Um, I, I, the word that I kept hearing used while he was in Walter Reed was this cocktail of medicine that he was taking, Dr. Nick. So with something as powerful as that, there must be a bunch of interactions with other um, drugs. Now, I know that those uh, Walter Reed doctors are you know, supreme in their field. But can you tell us what does it mean to mix so many powerful drugs at once to the extent that we're calling it a cocktail? Yeah, that's a, such a great question, Panel Beta. And in medicine, we call that polypharmacy, when we mix lots of things together. It's well recognised that in the long term, if people are mixing four or five drugs or more, your chance of some unhelpful interaction approaches 100%. <laughs> yeah. What we're talking about here is a mix of drugs which essentially have no track record of being mixed. Um, so he had this Regeneron, this sort of cocktail of a- antibody-type substances. He had this potent steroid. He had other things chucked in there as well, some zinc, which is probably pretty benign as a supplement. And mm. uh, he also had the resdemivir, so the antiviral. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are, I don't think there's any published evidence of any number of people who've had this 
cocktail thrown at them, particularly when they were, as we were told he was, in fact, relatively well. Yeah. So it's, it's just we are in unprecedented times. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of is the leading question to um, this, you know, what's often called the Goldwater Rule, usually more with uh, mental health. But here we've got physical health where everybody's diagnosing uh, Trump from a distance, everybody from the... Uh, from me, who knows nothing, um, right through to doctors from a distance. Uh, what do you make of all of that? Yeah, that's it. And just for people who aren't familiar with it, the Goldwater Rule is normally applied uh, in psychiatric settings. Well, do you want to elaborate on what it actually is? Yeah, be, yeah it refers to uh, presidential candidate uh, Barry Goldwater, who lost um, dramatically to Nixon. And um, uh, at the time, there was lots of diagnosing going on about Goldwater's mental health and the APA, the American Psychological Association, came out um, and uh, formulated this Goldwater rule saying that they wanted psychiatrists and psychologists to refrain from diagnosing at a distance. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously with Trump that's been revisited and people are making all sorts of very strong arguments that, that that's a redundant rule now given how much footage and audio we've got of Trump, um, which is very different from the Goldwater days. So we should be able to do... Just some extent the argument runs that we should be able to do to some extent some kind of distance diagnosis and the and the purists would say that unless i've sat down face to face with the patients and had a proper interview with them in person uh the goldwater rule says that i i'm barred from this is a psychiatrist i'm talking here or psychologist mental health professional is barred from making any diagnostic interpretations just from what they read in the newspapers or third-party evidence so your question can we do that in terms of physical health i'm not sure we have quite the same um, bar on anything like that. It possibly doesn't have quite the same implications. I'm not familiar with any kind of Goldwater equivalent in physical mm. health. And we spent a lot of time speculating. Boris Johnson, of course, had severe COVID and everybody was talking about how ghastly he looked when he came back uh, into the public domain. Uh, there didn't seem to be any ban on people speculating about what his oxygen levels might be or his mental capacities. It, it seems, though, with somebody like the... Uh orange super spreader that you can actually just see a physical color um, change you've also got cameras that are zooming in on his eyes and you can see the pupils and the dilate level of dilation there and i imagine that's a, a you know, well, that's a diagnostic tool, isn't it? Well, it is in every one of those movies where people just look in the eyeballs and they know exactly what's going on. I've always been slightly mystified by that. I'd love to be able to diagnose exactly which drug someone took from the size of their pupils. <laughs> but, yeah, and, but there's, there's sweating and yeah. there's stuttering and there's breath. I have to say, when I saw Trump stand up on that balcony and remove his mask and they zoomed in on the close-up, what I was watching was the tie and shirt just uh, under his jacket right. there. And I looked at him and I thought, this guy is, has got a rapid respiratory rate. He's actually having to breathe quite rapidly uh -huh. to keep himself looking that calm. So I was doing a Goldwater interpretation, <laughs> thinking his oxygen saturation is probably a little low, below what it ought to be. Oh, my goodness. The other thing I just wanted to mention is... Back in the pre-COVID days, we used to get all our information about what's happening out on the street from the taxi drivers or the, the hairdressers. Uh, of course, that source of information is denied to us. I recently had a replacement fridge delivered, and I was treated to a 10-minute uh, exposition by the fridge delivery person on his views <laughs> on one Daniel Andrews. And it was quite illuminating because he was vehement uh, about his views of this person. 
And it just made me think about how wise is it for a politician to be fronting a hundred consecutive uh, press conferences about something which is a health matter. What do you reckon, Pam? Oh, so many directions to go, isn't there? And I know time's tight. Maybe just one or two thoughts. Um, well, I guess journalists would argue that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to represent your fridge delivery guy when they're asking the politicians questions. Um, then there'd be the point of view, well, what, what does a functioning, healthy democracy look like? And way down the bottom of that list is making any sense, right? Because the f- principal feature of democracy is that all voices are heard and everybody can vote and we're all wonderful and and we've got to respect uh, the role of citizenry. On the other hand, you know, what's the role of expertise? And we touched on this uh, last week with uh, Dr Sharma and I don't know, I mean, you want your fridge delivery guy to be a... You know, be able to lift a very big piece of home furniture. But do you want him uh, deciding on... on, social distancing measures. Well, we'll perhaps come back to another time, but he was certainly perfectly capable of installing my fridge, which was done beautifully, and he was very articulate in his political views, which is entirely his right, and I respect entirely uh, our capacity to differ. We will perhaps have to come back to that, to another, <laughs> come back to that another time. Um, fairly shortly, we're going to be talking to uh, Prudence Deer about single-session therapy. I can't wait for this. That'll be coming up right after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Prudence is going to be talking about what we call single-session therapy. Now, for those who don't understand this, which would have been me about a week ago, single-session therapy is the idea that just seeing someone for one session as a psychologist or mental health professional could itself be therapeutic. And interestingly, there was a study done out of Beyond Blue fairly recently where they looked at people who had one episode of contact with Beyond Blue counsellors and they looked at, I can't remember the exact number, a few hundred people who'd had that experience and they showed an incredible benefit from just one Uh, session. And that, I hope, is what Prudence Deer, who we've now got, is going to tell us more about. Hi, Prudence. Oh, yes, Nick. (laughs) Yes, I'm talking to you. Cold sweat. Yeah. That's good. Now I'm here. I'm here. And, um, yes. What are we talking about? Single-session psychotherapy this morning. I mean, oh, I'd better start off, I think, just with a caveat. You know, when we talk about psychotherapy or any sorts of therapies, really, we know that there's, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, you know, that everyone's needs are different and, you know, that the therapeutic approaches need to be tailored to, to clients. And what we're going to be talking about, I think, especially around things like single-session therapy, is we're talking about mild to moderate mental health conditions. We're not talking or even suggesting that this is a form of therapy that's suitable for people with chronic conditions and major sort of major sorts of issues and so on. So just want to make sure that we're kind of clear on that one. So thank you. That's a very, and I'm wondering very... actually, Nick, I mean, as a GP, um, although you were saying, oh, perhaps you didn't know much about single session psychotherapy, I'm wondering, as a GP, when you, you know, you're getting clients and patients coming in, they're seeing about their whatever it is, their arthritis, their bronchitis, their, their asthma or something, but presumably, I'm pretty sure every now and again, you get somebody come into you, sit in front of you, and suddenly they'll pour their heart out about something to you. Yes, and, yes that and certainly quite often happens. I suspect as well that once they've done that, and you probably sit there going, oh dear, that's terrible, um, you know, I'll give you a referral or something. 
But by the end of the whatever, the 10 minutes of, of, of that, they actually look better and feel better. And thank you so much, Doctor. And off they go. Now, I'm wondering, you must have had that, haven't you? So, I'll, I'll absolutely. And well, I'll I just can't e- hear you, Nick. Never mind. OK, well, I'll, I'll just um, explain while you're... OK. I guess the key thing here is that if we look at data around... Um, the number of sessions that people attend when they go for psychotherapy, um, what we find is actually that the most common number of sessions is one. People turn up for a session and actually they don't often, majority of times, they don't come back for more. And one of the things about that, I guess, is as well, is that we, how do we know whether someone's going to turn up for one or more sessions? Once they've turned up for the first session, we may as well assume to some extent that they're only going to be there for one. And there's been a fair bit of work. I mean, while single session psychotherapy has been around for, you know, a long time, actually. I mean, Freud did it originally. Um, he did a few sessions that were just one-offs. And, uh, but it really came to its fore, I think, in the sort of 80s and 90s. Um, so there's a guy called uh, Moshi Talmon, and he wrote a few papers on this. And really, he kind of sought, identified that there are, there are some sorts of groups of clients who would be particularly, who would benefit from single session kind of psychotherapy. And they're people who've got an identifiable problem. Um, They're ones who perhaps have got past experience of dealing with issues and they know what their strengths and weaknesses are. And they've got a desire to change. And they've got perhaps supportive families and social structures. So, um, and they don't have, as I say, perhaps, you know, that it's not, this is not about people with severe conditions or neurological damage or personality disorders. But what we can see is that when people do, in those circumstances, turn up for a single session, they actually go away feeling better and they do report. I mean, quite high proportions in some cases. So the work that Talman did, and that's been substantiated by other researchers in similar timeframes there, when they were looking at particularly at like university students attending the medical center, the people had single sessions up to sort of 70, 80% actually felt that uh, they had, you know, there was some benefit to the single session and actually they'd gone a long way to resolving the problems that they'd um, were experiencing. Um, so it's really a case of if we can, you know, get really focused on something, somebody comes in to see us, um, they, we can help them in a more problem-solving approach, but they actually go away feeling a lot better. And the sorts of things that people report in those circumstances are like, for example, they they really... You know, they found the benefit of the opportunity to talk to and to be listened um, during their session of psychotherapy, and that people felt, you know, this. I think this is very important that they they felt they'd been listened to and they'd had a chance actually to process the issue or the problem themselves. Prudence, it's panel beta here. That, yeah. Thanks a lot for that introduction. I've just got to do two things. I've got a question for you, but more importantly, perhaps, is I've just got to check that Dr. Nick is is hearing you. We might have a little bit of a tech issue, and I know Dr. Nick's chomping at the bit to, to get in. Dr. Nick, can you hear me? Um, Look, I'm not doing... I mean, last last month I couldn't even get on at all. And, this, and now it's... This, you know, I'm hearing you loud and clear. Um, oh, a a question, question I've got for you, uh, yeah. Prudence, and then what's going to happen is that I'm going to make a mad dash to Dr Nick's studio. So <laughs> I'm going to... <laughs> 
Um, I'm wondering, so what, I wonder, I reckon a lot of listeners, just by virtue of being familiar with some of the stuff we cover on radiotherapy, are really familiar with CBT and cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. Could you could you maybe do a compare and contrast? Um, because there, that'll sure. be something that people will be familiar with um, and can think about this in, uh, in light yeah. of that. Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I think that's an important point. Thanks, PV. Look, um, and, and actually, how do we determine how effective a piece of, uh, you know, an approach is, a therapeutic approach? And um, we, we, most of us do know about cognitive behavioural therapy. And one of the good things about cognitive behavioural therapy is, amongst other things, it can be kind of manualised. We can actually write a procedure. And so when it comes to researching how effective a therapy is, we can find people with a particular diagnosis and we can send them to, oh, a whole group of different therapists and those therapists will follow a manualised procedure, which in the case of cognitive behavioural therapy might be, oh, well, we'll teach you a few things about anxiety and then I'm going to teach you how your body responds and then I'm going to show you how to, you know, to, to do some relaxation. Um, and, you know, through the progressive sessions, they will do different things with the client. And we can, we can take 20 or 30 clients with anxiety and we can take them through a procedure <clears throat> over time usually. And we can measure with scales, because we can say, how anxious are you on a scale of 1 to 10 or something? And we can measure that at the beginning of the sessions and then six sessions later we can measure it and say, oh, look, you know, most of the people actually felt better. Um, but most other forms, I think, really, many forms of therapy are not manualised. And actually what we know from research is it's not the actual modality. It's not whether you do CBT or EMDR or person-centred therapy or psycho, you know, psychoanalytic psychotherapy. What matters more is actually patient um, patient factors, how willing are they to change, you know, are they looking for, to improve their life in some way, and the relationship that develops with the, with, the, with the therapist. And that is something, obviously, that tends to happen over a period of time. I say to my clients, well, you know, come for a few sessions because, you know, we might not hit it off on the first, but by the third session we might be getting on really well and we're starting to understand each other. So, panel beta, um, let's see who can hear whom. <laughs> Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear, Dr. Ah, Nick. I can hear everyone. Oh, oh we're on. Prudence, I've got you. What a great delight <laughs> yeah. it is to make this two-way rather than one way. So my apologies yeah. for the slight technical glitchery. And thank you for your capacity to... Um, <laughs> Keep talking. Yeah, no, you did, I, I just want to go right back to your question right at the start because it yeah. was so important, that one. Uh, as, as a junior GP, I used to get exactly what you're talking about. People would come in, pour their heart out. I'd be thinking, oh, my God. I have to refer this person, do something urgently because they've got such a problem. And then, to my slight astonishment, many of them didn't actually take up that offer. Yeah. And it took me exactly. about five years to realise that that one session where they had been heard and had a chance to say what they felt like. And you're yeah. correctly talking about these are not people who were at the severe end of the spectrum. And that no. single session had, in fact, been sufficiently beneficial. They didn't feel the need to then follow through. So, right. you say you've talked very eloquently about some of the differences between the kind of manualized therapies and single session mm -hmm. therapy. Now, I'm going to get hard nosed and scientific with you. Is there any yeah. research to tell us that single session therapy is indeed a wise and cost effective thing to do? Um, okay, well, we know, I suppose, the research shows that it's, it can be effective and it can be effective in sort of broad numbers. Um, and, you know, like 
one of the, the I think one of the nicest and most attractive approaches is around the idea of a walk-in service. So in other words, it's not about people waiting for service. It's not about them, you know, going and seeing their GP, getting a referral, and then waiting three, four weeks to see a psychologist. It's a case of, and it's the sort of thing you can do at universities, you have a medical centre, you know, students wander in on campus, walk into the medical centre, say they want to talk to somebody, we get them to see somebody within 30 minutes and they feel better. Um, yes, I don't know that we've got any hard evidence to say that therefore they don't go on to, to need further um, services, but by and large it does look, for example, you know, so this would be anecdotal, that once one session does, it is somehow effective, it's beneficial, they feel that they've achieved something and they don't need to access services, you know, in the longer term. So I guess that is, um, is that cost effective? Probably yes. And furthermore, I think, you know, it's about making these services accessible, though, and making them so, I mean, if, if, all us, all us therapists did a few of these, you know, we would see a few more clients, which would actually help yes, speed that, that way through yeah, the That would help, wouldn't it? Panel Peter. Yeah, thanks, Dr Nick. So what occurs to me, I, I, I'm picking up what Dr Nick's putting down, Prudent. So doesn't that then turn every consultation into an N equals one? And, and it's just all on the lived experience? So we can't... We can't... No? No? No, no, I think, well, I think, you know, um, there, there is certainly value in sort of being very much in the present with the client. But, I mean, there are, uh, you know, we, we know, for example, as when we were talking about CBT, we were talking about, and I use the example of anxiety. I'm going to get clients that come and see me, they've got anxiety. We're not going to resolve that in one session. We know that. But we know that we could actually make significant inroads in six or 12 sessions, so to say. So I think, you know, we need to have that flexibility in, in our response. To, as I said right at the beginning, we need to tailor the, the sort of types of service we're offering clients with different needs. But it's, no, it's certainly worth, I think, um, you know, spending a bit more time looking at the fact that we can actually help a lot of people in a very short space of time. So, Prudence, that is absolutely fascinating stuff, and we could easily talk on about this, and I mm. hope we'll take up this a little bit more when we get Rainbow Doc on um, after the music yeah. break. Um, sadly, our time has run out. My chance to I ask know. you questions was limited, but uh, I'm very, very glad that we had you on today. Thank you so much for your time, well, and we look forward to, to talking here. to you in more detail in a few weeks' time. Um, <laughs> thank you, Prudence, dear. Um, yeah, and just take And just in case for anyone listening, this is Ray, issues of concern don't forget you can always use lifeline which is one three double one one four very helpful resource if you are distressed by this or any other matter lifeline one three double one one four available right now if needed we'll be talking to rainbow doc uh, and we're going to be talking about practice-based evidence i can't wait to find out more about that this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the phone now, we have Rainbow Doc. Hi, Rainbow. Hello, good morning, Dr Nick. Good morning, PB. Morning. Lovely to have you on, Rainbow. Um, we'll get straight into it. So uh, as, as the scientist in me looked at this and thought, this sounds fasc fascinating. You're talking to us about practice-based evidence. We're very used to the concept of evidence-based medicine and evidence-based practice, but you're talking about practice-based evidence. What are we talking about? 
What we're talking about here is, you know, this has come to my mind in the face of the the 10 sessions, the 20 sessions that have been, um, if you want, allocated to people seeking um, support with mental health issues from psychologists and social workers, people that are registered for, for Medicare psychological services. Um, so and, just and so asked, just to be clear, Rainbow, so if, if people don't know this, we used to get 10 sessions per calendar year, and under COVID, uh, we're now allocated an extra 10 so people can get up to a total of 20 sessions in a calendar year. Is that correct? Yeah, well, how it's working, you need to have used your 10 sessions. You are eligible for another 10 if you've already used your 10 sessions this calendar year, which means that people who are currently receiving care from, um, from a, a mental health practitioner can continue to access that. So it's great for them um, if, if that's what they're, that they're needing to do. It's not so great for new clients because I think, um, as Prudence um, alluded to, it's kind of blocking up the system a little bit. People that are, um, you know, maybe for the first time trying to access sessions with a referral from their GP may be ringing up a whole load of psychological practices and getting a, sorry, we have no availability and uh, ending up, you know, not really quite knowing what to do. That's a problematic, which is why the single session would be a great you know, a great way to go. So it's a bit of a flip of the coin, isn't it? We've talked about single session therapy and the potential benefits of that and the evidence around it. And now we're turning it around and saying, well, not just 10, but 20 sessions and then doing that annually. So let's talk about practice-based evidence then. What, what, what does that actually mean in this context? Well, we can't talk about practice-based evidence, I don't think, without just you know, visiting what evidence-based practice is. Mm -hmm. You know, as a psychologist, we're taught that everything that we do with a client has to be um, evidence-based. And that means that there has to have been research uh, and and prove very nicely kind of uh, outlined what that might look look like. Uh, A treatment, a CBT treatment, for instance, where you might have six sessions. And initially, the Medicare rebates were for six sessions first and then another six and then another six. When it first came in over a decade Mm -hmm. ago, you could get six sessions and that was based on evidence-based practice that we we knew that with six sessions and a manualized treatment of CBT, you could um, effect some kind of change for people with anxiety. That was that was the basis of that. And can I just interrupt um, for a second? Because the, as an outsider to this, but in the field, of course, I was very interested in that, that this was evidence that was around a specific modality, cognitive behavior therapy, CPT, which, again, as an outsider, sometimes seems to be touted as the effective treatment for pretty much everything because people seem to have researched it. But, of course, there are many, many other psychological modalities other than CBT for which maybe six sessions are not enough. That's exactly right. And it's, it's, the thing about CBT, it's very easy to quantify. And a lot of sessions, a, a, a lot of approaches, because, um, for starters, there is the practitioner. You know, how do you measure the, the, the practitioner that is delivering this service? As we know, and uh, as has already been said this morning, that the, the single most um, useful measure of outcome for psychological services 
is is the relationship. So it's how the how the how the therapist is able to build a relationship with with the client or with the patient. That is the single most predictive factor. And, um, and actually, and, just and to how back, do you measure it? And to back that up, if I may, there was a wonderful quote I came across um, from people called Miller, Hubble, and Duncan, which said the provider of a session is a much more important determinant of success than the particular treatment approach provided. Yeah, and and that that still I, I can't remember how long ago that research was done, but it's it's still valid. You mm-hmm. know, we haven't had research that has uh, invalidated that. So, um, and uh, Einstein said, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. In other words, we can't measure everything that is important, particularly when we're talking about complex humans. So if there's a, you know, evidence-based practice based on randomized control trials where things have to be controlled so you know what the influence is, so you can, can establish some kind of cause and effect... Um, and that might be relevant to that sample. It might be a very large sample, but it's still controlled via, you know, age, you know this, Dr. Nick, age, you know, cultural background, um, uh, you know, the, the thing, gender, all the things that normally get... If you don't fit into that, there is no guarantee at all that that particular approach is going to work for you. So how do we so, do then get away from that? How do we actually get practice-based evidence? Practice-based evidence is, is, a, a, is a, if you want, a bottom-up way of looking at things. Rather than finding the evidence and, if you want, slapping on that treatment to a person, you start from the person, you start from the client or the um, uh, patient and the practitioner. There's the relationship. And you get practitioners to collect data from, from their sample, from their client base, um, use the skills that they use their approach, and with this data, um, not be trying to control anything, yeah? to embrace, uh-huh. complexity, embrace the complexity of people. So, you know, you might have, for instance, someone that has generalized anxiety disorder. They might be queer. They might be a person of color. They might be a twin. They may be the oldest in the family. They might have had an experience of homelessness. They might have had some kind of um, trauma at the onset of puberty. They might have diabetes. They might have difficulties with their libido. Right. Okay. Your point is important, isn't it? Because you can't imagine too many double-blind controlled trials of anxious, queer, and people of colour who have a traumatic background, etc. Right. So, so it's it's not going to apply. It might be a little bit helpful, but it's just not going to get in there. So, um, there are there, there is much more research of, of trying to encompass diversity and intersectionality, but. Nevertheless, the sample is often too small to be peer-reviewed and to be, you know, put up there as evidence that, that, that can be followed, you know. We, with um, evidence-based practice, things need to be peer-reviewed, and if they don't pass the test, they're not considered to be evidence-based practice. I'd say one of the exceptions here that is, is much more accepted is the case study, because a case study, in a way... Practice-based evidence. And, and, and maybe 
So in in the real world that you work and live in, how do we apply practice-based evidence to your work? Practice-based evidence will often result when the data collected will result in you know guidelines. So it's not a manualised treatment; they're guidelines that can be used to guide the practitioner to work with the individual, rather than use a, a, a manual and and follow that procedure irrespective of who is sitting in front of you. So it's something that kind of comes out of the psychotherapeutic approach rather than the psychological approach. Those two disciplines, I have a sense, are kind of getting closer together these days. And interestingly, because uh, I had a quick look to see where else this was being applied, and to my utter astonishment, I came across a journal I'd never heard of before called Cardiopulmonary Physical Therapy, where they were talking about, in that particular very organic world, the use of practice-based evidence. And they talked about, and this is really what you've said, the real, messy, complicated world is not controlled. And I thought that yeah. was just lovely, and that's really what you're describing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, it's not controlled, it's extremely diverse, extremely complex and I guess it's difficult when you're sitting in, in, um, in a therapy room with clients and working with that complexity to then have, if you want, be governed by decisions that are based on evidence that isn't relevant to your client base. So, so for instance... what. Yes, I mean, what I've, heard, what I've heard from a lot of clients is that COVID, in a way, has um, leveled the playing field because people who have, because, of, because they are marginalised, um, live lives that, where they feel very isolated, um, they live with a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear um, of, of going outside their front door sometimes. Um, just because they may be attacked verbally, they may be attacked physically, and even if that's not going to happen, they know that it's a possibility. And what they're finding is that now people that were, if you want, people living with privilege are now having a little bit of that experience <laughs> yes. of living with financial uncertainty, not, not sure how they're going to get their, their basic needs met possibly in the future. So it's kind of... Um, as I said, levels the playing field. Yes, I've heard this from other people. I've heard some of my patients with chronic psychosis who've lived lives which are often very isolated say to people, say to me about others, welcome to my world. Um, Rainbow, thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. I now have a much better grasp of practice-based evidence and um, will consider it in a much more um, serious light than perhaps I did before. Sadly, we can't talk any more about it now, but thank you very much for helping us out today. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Dr. Nick. If, if talking about this has raised any issues for you, don't forget Lifeline is 131114. And we'll be back with you with uh, misdiagnosis right after these messages. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And on the line now we have misdiagnosis. Good morning, Misty. 
Good morning, Dr. Nick. Now, you've been thinking all things milk, the milk of human kindness, not crying over it when you spill it. Uh, why, why are you so engaged with milk this morning? That's a very fair question. I think because my hobbies, which used to be you know vast and, and all-encompassing, have now uh, been narrowed down to uh, having coffee with people in my 5K. And because of that, um, really the only thing we do is sort of walk out to a cafe somewhere with a mask on, get a coffee and meander around. And having done this on multiple occasions with multiple different friends, I've noticed that all my millennial friends have different uh, proclivities when it comes to choosing their lattes or their flat whites and what kind of milk they're using. I, I love the concept of a proclivity around the latte. What proclivities <laughs> have emerged? So essentially, you know, it used to be, and when I used to work in cafes as well, pretty much everyone drank dairy milk and potentially some soy milk as well if they were lactose intolerant. Now, however, we have this plethora of milk on offer. We have almond milk, we've got rice milk, we've got coconut milk, we've got oat milk. And I sent a text to my cousin the other day and said, lavender flat white, to which she responds, oh, do they have lavender milk? And it was me taking the piece of her milk choice. And no, they don't actually do lavender milk, but that's the mentality a lot of people are in at the moment. I think it's the next best thing. I'm going to invest in lavender milk futures. Now that you brought it up, it's obviously going to explode. Well, she said, she said, oh, that sounds lovely. I wish I could have a lavender milk latte. <laughs> it was a joke. It doesn't actually exist. So I thought to myself, you know, what's with all these different milks? How long have they been around? And are they actually good for us? Or is this just the sort of one area of novelty that we are allowed in a pandemic? And that's why we're choosing them. So can so I ask, are we going practice-based evidence here or evidence-based oh. latte? <laughs> <laughs> this is evidence-based latte because um, most of these milks you can actually randomly control in a bottle. <laughs> and so you're the, you're the scientist, you're the doctor. So tell us about the health implications of all these different milks. So the first thing that I noticed when I did some research into this is, whereas I thought all these oat milks and almond milks and these kind of things were newfangled devices that were being sold to millennials to sort of take our money so that we have avocados and can't buy houses, that's actually not the case. Almond milk has been around since the 8th century and was used by the Moors in Europe when they were looking for dairy alternatives. Doesn't that mean and it'll have gone off? Oh, sorry, that's a very bad joke. <laughs> and likewise, soy milk has been around since the 14th century. So these milks have actually been around for a very, very long time. So I had a look into the nutritional content of these different milks. And keeping in mind that this discussion is purely about the nutrition, not about the ethical reasons for choosing different milks, because there okay. are some people that would that choose not to drink cow milk um, for ethical reasons. And that's not this discussion. This discussion is purely on the nutrition. Mm -hmm. So, when we look at dairy milk, one of the reasons why uh, medical professionals in the past have recommended dairy milk is because it's a very high source of calcium. And it's not only a high source of calcium, it's a high source of absorbable calcium. So, we know that some of these other milks, even the milks that are fortified with calcium, our body doesn't absorb them as easily. And that could be due to a number of different things. Some of the other... Um, uh, sort of uh, substances that are that are present in that dairy milk. So it's got other things, other sort of vitamins and nutrients like vitamin B12, zinc. So maybe Trump could use the dairy milk instead of um, <laughs> zinc supplementation. Mix it with his Dettol, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Might make it taste a bit better. Um, phosphorus and um, iodine, things like that in dairy milk. Um, it also is a high source of saturated fat as well. So by far, dairy milk is one of the more calorific of the milk choices, but it's due to its high calcium, which we need for healthy bones, that we've previously recommended dairy milk. 
Now, if we go down the sort of the milk the milk chain, looking at different types of milk, probably the second most prevalent milk is probably something like soy milk. We have soy milks that can be fortified with calcium, but they also contain a lot of fats and fibre as well, and the calcium is not absorbed as much as the dairy milk. Okay, so calcium so calcium is an issue perhaps for the, the soy milks. How much does that matter, though? We must get heaps of calcium elsewhere. So for humans, we get most of our calcium through dairy or dairy-like products. So if you're not, if you're not drinking milk or, or eating dairy-like products, you actually have very few sources of calcium in your diet. Okay. So it is really important, especially as we get older and our bones maybe are getting a bit weaker, making sure we have enough calcium in our diet is really important. Do any of the other milks that we're talking about, you've said soy milk, the calcium isn't easily absorbed. What about the others? So the others can all have calcium added to them. But again, the absorbability of that calcium is not nearly as high as soy, as dairy milk, sorry. Um, so dairy milk really is the best choice if you're looking for a source of calcium in your diet. Now, most of my sort of young friends are not exactly looking for uh, high sources of calcium in, in their diet. I think they're looking for sort of more fun things to have in their latte. So if we look down at some of the other milks, things like almond milk, much lower in um, protein and calcium, but especially the almond milks that uh, um, have a lot of sugar added to them, which a lot of them do, they can, be, they can have a lot of sugar, um, which is the same as oat milks and rice milks. Because they are not that naturally sweet, these products, Sometimes they get a lot of sugar added, and we can look at unsweetened versus sweetened, and the unsweetened are far better. The problem with going to your local cafe is they normally use the best-tasting milk, so you never know how much sugar they have in them. Aha. Uh-huh. So you might be going for a milk which doesn't have the um, calories that you associate with the fats of cow's milk, but it's actually got hidden calories in terms of sugar. Exactly. And things like coconut milk um, and oat milk. Oat milk has a huge amount of carbohydrates in it. And coconut milk has a huge amount of sugar in it as well if it's a sweetened version. Um, And then purely from an environmental point of view, the best thing to do is synthesize your own milk, make your own oat milk or almond milk at home. And one of the reasons I imagine a lot of people are choosing not to use cow's milk is because of lactose intolerance or other reasons that are more health-related that they find they tolerate these other milks better. Um, Did you look at that at all and about whether there's any real rationale for choosing uh, rice milk over almond over over other non-dairy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, so to in order to break down the lactose in dairy milk, we need an enzyme called lactase within our body. Now, most um, as babies, we all have this enzyme, and for some people, and we don't really know why, this enzyme, um, our production of this enzyme slowly goes away. And some people have this enzyme for their entire life, and so they can break down the lacta- the lactose. Um, using their lactase, and for others who don't have it, they can become lactose intolerant. So when you are lactose intolerant, it is important to seek one of the other options because it can be very uncomfortable if you're having dairy milk. So the only time that we wouldn't recommend soy milk, and this one is really interesting, there was a whole lot of research that came out about something called phytoestrogens. Do you remember that research from a couple of years ago, Dr. Nick? I'm very familiar with phytoestrogens because, <laughs> well, because there was a time when we were being recommended to tell every perimenopausal or newly menopausal woman to stock up on the alfalfa and the soy because it was going to get her natural plant-based phytoestrogens surging and make her feel much better. That's right. That's right. Um, where soy milk got into a bit of um, sort of murky water um, was around breast cancer, and the Cancer Council now actually 
recommends that if you have breast cancer, not to consume um, products that are high in phytoestrogens, including soy milk, uh-huh. because the effect of having extra phytoestrogens when you're already in a hyperestrogenic state um, can be detrimental. So that's the only time um, that we recommend not having the soy milk. It just goes to show that it's what I've always thought, that soy milk is nothing more than murky water. I want to ask you a couple of things uh, before we finish misdiagnosis. You've mentioned that there may be a strong reason for avoiding soy milk if you have breast cancer. Are there any other health negatives to these milks? I mean, people like them, they enjoy them, they maybe use them for environmental or because of intolerance reasons. But is there any mm. negative to any of these milks? Otherwise, you've mentioned soy milk and breast cancer. Any other reasons we should be cautious with any of the other milk alternatives? As long as you're getting the adequate nutrients from the rest of your diet, eating a relatively balanced, as uh, sort a of well-balanced diet, there shouldn't be any problem with having the other milks. Oat milk does have a very, very high uh, carbohydrate count in it, so it might be avoided in people with diabetes. But the rest of the milks, assuming you're getting all of those vitamins and minerals elsewhere in your diet and you're getting enough calcium elsewhere if you need it, no problem. Okay, and the final question, A2 milk, yes or no? <laughs> Uh, undecided. <laughs> Panel Peter, what do you put? Oh, you said you have your your lattes black. Yeah, yeah that's I an do. oxymoron. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, black coffee all the way. Yes, okay. I'm I'm dairy free completely. Oh, are you? Well, yes. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask misdiagnosis. What do you put in your lattes? Oh, I'm I'm really boring. I just have a piccolo, just with normal milk. Oh, okay. So a piccolo is just a very what is what's that? It's a small. It's a small one. It's a, this is exactly what one of my bosses said the other day when they bought. I mean, it's a small one because if I'm if I'm at work and I'm drinking coffee, I don't want to have sort of the larger quantity of beverage. This is <laughs> this is something to do with wearing PPE, isn't it? It's, it's, oh my god, it's very much. When you're wearing, wearing PPE, PPE, you don't want to have to do we. And it goes it, the, well. The coffee goes cold too quickly if you get a sort of full sized coffee and you can only drink it. At, you know, in sort of hourly regimented intervals. So there we have it. If we summarise what you're saying, as I understand it, you can have any of these milks in your coffee. Don't go for the soy milk if you've got breast cancer, at least not in large quantities, certainly. Um, Otherwise, make your choice based on preference, your own tolerances, and maybe those other important things around environmental concerns. Would that be a reasonable summary? Absolutely. And don't forget the power of novelty. There's not a lot going on at the moment. So splash out. Have an almond milk latte for a change. And let's try this lavender milk. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's interested in creating it, then I I, um, bag the patent. (laughs) Panel Beater, you don't sound very convinced by the concept of lavender milk. Yeah, a little bit reluctant. I'm I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to be a bit more rationalist than a lot of the tone of the the session today. I think we're coming back to Panel Beater being the hardcore scientist going with the evidence. (laughs) Misdiagnosis, thank you very much for illuminating. And the one milk that we know is best for all of us is the milk of human kindness. Thank you very much. Thank you, you, Miss Diagnosis, and thank you to all our panellists. So, we've had Rainbow Doc, we've had uh, Prudence Deer, we've had Miss Diagnosis, and looking after the whole show, we've had Panel Beta. It's nearly time to wrap up. Um, I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. Uh, You can listen to us anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. 
broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.